I wanted to uh, begin this morning's sermon. Actually, first I wanted just to kind of give you a preview of, uh, of where, where we're going over the next several months. Right now, during this month of Advent, as we, uh, as we celebrate the first coming of the Lord Jesus and we look forward to the second, uh, we are spending time talking about the church's message, the story of the Bible, what it means when Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, so it's a slightly different look at Christmas, but it is the story that the church believes. In January, we're gonna, we're gonna look at the church's mission. What does it mean to be the church? Uh, what does it mean to make disciples? That's the, the mission of the church has not changed, uh, since Jesus gave it on a mountain in the Middle East over 2,000 years ago. Uh, we are still in the business, so to speak, of making disciples, and we're gonna spend the month of January talking about that. Uh, in February, we're going to talk about the church's leaders. We're going to talk about what it means to be shepherded. Uh, and so we'll spend some time on uh, this topic of shepherding from the scriptures. And then after that, it's likely, and I'm not for sure, but it's kind of what I'm aiming at right now. Uh, we're going to look at the life of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. So just to kind of give you a, a preview of where we're headed over the next several months. Uh, but today is our third Sunday in... Uh, this, this Kingdom Come series, as we're looking at the story of the Bible, we've seen creation, we've seen fall, and now we will focus on redemption, uh, which is what takes up the majority, you might say, of the story of the Bible. Um, and so it's kind of hard to settle on a passage uh, to preach from, but this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. <clears throat> Before I read, let's pray together. God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us. We thank you that you are a God who has revealed himself and you have revealed him yourself in mercy. That you sent your son, the word, into the world. But you have also sent your word spoken through the prophets and through the apostles given to us for us and our salvation so that we would know, so that we would know what to believe. God, this morning, I pray for your help. I pray that you would help us to understand your word, that you would uh, give us clarity, give me clarity as I preach, or that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds to receive your good news. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 1, I'm actually going to start reading in verse 9. If you're using the Bible there in the uh, pew in front of you, uh, it's page 836. I'm going to start reading at verse 9 of Mark chapter 1. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him into out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. 
Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. One of our uh, one of our favorite books to read our children. In fact, I, I imagine the ladies probably heard this read at the uh, ladies' Christmas dinner this past Wednesday. But one of our favorite books to read our children was the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, because of the way it ties the whole story of the Bible together. But I want to read to you uh, the introduction to the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says this. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it, and they show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think that the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but... As you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every other story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. That beautiful picture is what we have been looking at this Advent. We're zooming out from the moment of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem to consider how that birth fits into the whole story that God is telling. To learn what it means, what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. And so when we see Jesus in today's passage, he's about 30 years old, and he's beginning what we call his earthly ministry. And he begins it with these words in chapter 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That word gospel means good news. And these words are the summary statement of Jesus' life. Everything that takes place after this moment uh, is going to be uh, the fulfilling, or I guess the the living out of this very summary statement. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take a few of the phrases from this statement, from what Jesus says here, and unpack them um, so that we can learn. And this is the kind of main idea that I want us to see this morning, that the good news, that gospel, the good news is that God has broken into history to rescue his people and build his kingdom. God himself has broken into human history to rescue his people, to fix what we broke, 
uh, and to build his kingdom. So first, let's look at this. Uh, let's look at this phrase: "The time is fulfilled." What is, what does Jesus mean? The time is fulfilled. This this one phrase we could really use it to tell the entire story of the uh, of the Old Testament. Right? Remember, two weeks ago we saw God's kingdom at creation; that it was perfect; that there were harmonious relationships between God and man, and man and the rest of creation. That we would say that all is right. With the world. And then last week, we saw the fall. We saw that kingdom fallen as man and woman reject God's rule. Remember, that's the, the definition we're using of God's kingdom. God's people in God's place under God's loving rule. That was perfect at creation. Adam and Eve reject God's rule and they lose God's place. They are ejected from the garden. That sin and all of its consequences enter the world at that point. That the most serious of those consequences being death, separation from God himself. And so then what you see, if you were to read the book of Genesis, starting in chapter 4 through verse 11, that the story of humanity outside of the garden, humanity in the fall, is one of constant rebellion. Yes, Humanity multiplies, people grow, they fill the earth, They're, as the people multiply, so does evil, so does sin. That from Genesis 4 to 11, things just spiral out of control. There's a flood uh, that wipes out most of the population, but even that doesn't fix the problem. That the disease is a genetic one, and it continues to grow and spread. But it's out of this... This world of constant rebellion that God calls an idol-worshipping pagan named Abram. Now, you know him probably as Abraham, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible. We're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 12, if you would turn there. If you're, again, using the Pew Bible, it's page 8. Genesis chapter 12. Now, one thing that's important to note, that before this moment, Abram is not a worshiper of God. He is not worshiping God. He's not better than the rest of the people of his generation. There is nothing special about Abram. There is nothing that, said Ab- that sets Abram apart from anyone else in all of humanity. He is a part of the broken world order. Okay? Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So, when Jesus shows up and says, the time is fulfilled, at least in large part, he's looking back to this moment. This moment when God calls Abram out of his idol-worshipping family and says, leave your land and go to the land that I will show you. 
Leave your family, right? Leave your security blanket. Leave your 401k. That's what leaving your family would have meant in Abram's day. Leave everything that makes you you, right? Everything, leave your security and follow me. Trust me. And these promises that God gives Abram form the foundation for the rest of the story of the Bible. Everything from this moment forward looks back on these promises, and there are four of them here. These promises are developed a little bit more in Genesis 15 and 17, but here are the four promises uh, that, that God gives Abram, and you could use four Ps. First, he promised, promises to make him a people, a great nation. He will have many descendants. As he finds out later, they will outnumber the stars in the sky. He also promises him a place. In the Old Testament, this is Canaan, the promised land where Israel will come to dwell. More importantly, he promises his presence, right? God will be with Abraham. That's what his name will become as God walks with him. God will be with Abraham to such an extent that everyone who blesses Abraham will be blessed and everyone who curses Abraham will be cursed. That is how strong God's presence with Abraham will be. This will come to mean the the tabernacle in Exodus, if you're familiar with that, the temple in Israel, they are the sign of God's presence. The way this will be summarized later is they will, is God will say, I will be your God and you will be my people. I want you to hold on to that. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's summarized in the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. All right. That's, that's the presence promise that God makes to Abraham. And then the final P is program. I wish I had a word with a little more zip than that, but program is what I got. So, and here's the program. Because of these other three, God can promise Abraham in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I will bless the entire world through you. Now, so here's what, here's what this means. In Abraham, God promises to redeem the fallen kingdom from Genesis 3. Through Abraham, God will begin to make right what Adam made wrong. All right? That he will restore God's rule over God's people in God's place. And yet, the story of Abraham's people, the people of Israel, is a mixed bag. There are some good moments, some highlights, but even Abram will struggle to trust God's promise. Even Abram at several points, he even lies about his wife being his wife to protect himself and actually jeopardizes the promise and God has to intervene. That will be the story of Abraham's people, repeatedly rescued and yet repeatedly rejecting God's Rule and God's kingdom, continually turning away from the God of promise to seek blessings in other places, to seek blessings from other saviors, other gods who cannot deliver. That is the story of the Old Testament. But God continues to work. Let's look at the next phrase. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That phrase, 
kingdom of God, that, that phrase is used throughout uh, the Gospels, the four Gospel accounts, but also into the book of Acts. But yet it's never used in the Old Testament. The, the, the phrase kingdom of God is never used in the Old Testament. And yet, Jesus uses it so often, which means that the people in Jesus' day knew what he meant. They were looking for something called God's kingdom. And Jesus was promising to deliver it. So the question is, what were they looking for? Yes, they were looking for those promises made to Abraham to be fulfilled. But there was another, there's another step in there that I want to look at next. And it comes from another Old Testament book, the book of 2 Samuel. So let's turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you're using the Bible in the row, it's page 259. As you turn there, let me locate you in the Bible's history and world history. What we're about to read takes place about a thousand years after the promise to Abraham. It involves a man named David. Israel is firmly established in the promised land. They have the land that God had promised. And they, uh, they are a kingdom. And they have a king whose name is David, and he is a man that God has chosen to be king. There was another king before him named Saul, and he was a bad king. He was the king that the people chose. Hope you're beginning to see a repeated theme here. People make a choice bad. God makes a choice good, right? Um, so this is God's king, David. Uh, he has been given security from his enemies. All is at peace. This is the high point of David's kingdom. And we read this in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8. What David is wanting to do is build God a temple. He wants to build God a house so that God can have a house be present in Israel, in Jerusalem. Here's what God says through his prophet Nathan. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. You hear the, the echoes of the promise to Abraham. Listen for those people, place, presence, program, promises, echoed in these words to Abraham. I will make for you a great name. Like the name of the great ones of the earth, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. All right. So we'll pause just a second. David's desire was to make God a house. God says to David, you would do something great for me? No, no, no. I'm going to do something great through you. You're not going to build my house. I will build your house. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. 
When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now there's a lot going on in this passage that we can't look at right now. But I want you to see this, that God's plan, His rescue plan, His kingdom plan for redemption and rescue is now tied to David, to David's line. And these kingdom promise builds on the promises already made to Abraham. And here's what that means, that as the king goes, so go the people. For better and for worse. And this promise that God makes to David here has an immediate fulfillment in David's son Solomon. Solomon does build the temple. Solomon does build the place of God's presence in Israel. But David and Solomon and every king after them repeat the same error of their forefathers, of their ancestors. They reject God's blessing. In fact, this moment right here is as good as it will ever be for David. After this moment, if you know the story of the Bible, David falls in some pretty serious sin. And it plagues his house for the rest of his life. And even through Solomon's kingship and on into the ages after that. David and his line, they reject God's blessing. And the kingdom falls again. The Old Testament ends with God's people rejecting God's rule. And once again, being ejected from God's place. So you see that these themes of fall and redemption are working side by side. But as the kingdom fractures, as, as the kingdom is, is, of Israel begins to fall apart, and morality declines, and justice declines, and things get worse, these guys called prophets start to appear. And they are mouthpieces, messengers from God. And they declare the bad news that God will punish Israel for his sins. But they also declare the good news that a king, a better David, will come. Promises like what we read at the beginning from Isaiah 7 of a child born to a virgin whose name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. A better king will come. And he will be the one who will fulfill the promises made to Abraham. And then the prophets go dark. For 400 years, no word. Silence from God. And then the New Testament opens in this way. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The one, once again, God is breaking into human history. We didn't look at this at Genesis 12, but if we go back and think about it for just a minute, five times in two verses, God says, I will bless 
I will bless. You will be a blessing. Five times in two verses, God uses the word bless. And that should take our breath away. Because the word that defined humanity up to that point, the word that hung over humanity like a stone is the word cursed. But in Genesis chapter 12, God takes the curse and he turns it into a blessing. And in Genesis and in Matthew chapter 1, once again, God breaks in to human history to turn cursing into blessing. Or, as Jesus puts it, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, so what? It's a great history lesson, Kevin. That's a great, that's a great Bible story. So what? What does that have to do with me? Well, let's look at the last phrase. Repent and believe the good news. This story demands a response. The story of what God has done demands a response from me and from you. We cannot simply hear it and say, oh, well, that's an interesting history. The way that Jesus presents it demands a response. Look at the words, the gospel. Jesus comes proclaiming good news, not dispensing good advice. Christianity offers, first and foremost, and we could even say really only, good news, not good advice. What Jesus came proclaiming will not be found on the self-help section of Barnes and Noble. They still do have some of those bookstores around, by the way. Amazon isn't the only one who sells books. They won't be found in the self-help section of Amazon either. Good news, not good advice. What does that, what does that mean? That if you're approaching Jesus as a good teacher. Now, Jesus has lots of good things to teach. He is a good teacher. And he makes lots of statements that are very, uh, that are very meaningful. He, he make, like, like many of, uh, the great religious leaders before him, right? He teaches proverbs, uh, things about the way society ought to work, and that's good. But he also says things like, I'm God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Statements that if any one of us made them, if you were in, if you were in normal conversation at a dinner party with someone who said some of the things that Jesus said, you would go, excuse me? You would call the police to come and have him arrested, maybe committed. Jesus, if you, if your approach to Jesus is one of a good example, Certainly, Jesus is the best example. No one is better. And yet, Jesus says that he comes to give his life as a ransom for many. He's not simply an example of self-sacrifice. He's not simply an example of falling on your sword for someone else. No, he, he makes statements like this where he says, I am the king who comes to make things right. So Jesus cannot simply be a good teacher or a moral example, not based on his words alone. Just just taking what he says at face value, there must be something else going on. No, Jesus comes not as a 12-step program, not to offer strategies for personal fulfillment 
or to help you get in touch with your inner self. No, Jesus comes with this astonishing and amazing news that God has done what you could not. God has come to fix what we have broken. God has come to save us from ourselves. And that announcement demands a response. And the response that Jesus gives is repent, turn, turn away, renounce, turn away from your rebellion, come back to the God who made you, come back to the only God who can save you. Repent and believe, trust, receive, rest upon Him alone. Turn from believing that you can get into the kingdom on your own. Turn from trying to build your own kingdom on your own, on your own idea of what good is. And trust. Trust that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are enough. Are the finished work. The only work that you need to enter God's kingdom. That's the message of the kingdom redeemed. That when man has repeatedly fallen again and again, that God has broken in, like He did with Noah, like He did with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel and Moses and everyone else in the story. God has broken in to history to rescue His people and to build His kingdom forever. One of the astonishing things about that promise to David is he tells David that when your sons, or when your son, when your offspring goes astray, I will punish him for his iniquity. With rod, with the human rod, with stripes. We say, well, how can that apply to Jesus? Jesus didn't commit any sin. He didn't commit any iniquity. All of David's other sons did. The remarkable thing about Jesus is that when He comes, Isaiah says, uh, by His stripes we are healed. That Jesus receives the wounds that we deserve so that we could go free, so that we, we could receive His blessing. David's throne is gone. And yet, God promises that a king will sit over Israel forever. Jesus is that King. Repent and believe in the good news. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who we have a thousand times said again and again, you are the one who does what we cannot do. And it's not that we even have given our best efforts. It's not simply that you have to make up just the difference of what we lack. For that you are a God who goes after the rebel. You are a God who rescues and redeems those who aren't even seeking you, like Abram. Those who will run far from you, like David. Even using those men to bring your Son, Jesus, into the world. And just as 
you said to Joseph, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Oh Lord, that we would believe that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's